Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series on topics related to going forward into a new year. In this sermon, we are taught what the Sabbath day meant in the Old Testament and what it means to us. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, The Lord's Day. Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be going to a lot of different places this morning, but we'll start in Genesis chapter 1 if you got a Bible with you. If not, I'll be reading them all out loud. Genesis chapter 1, continuing in our New Year's series here. We'll kind of see how it ties in here in just a moment. While you're turning, just one word of gratitude I'd like to pass along. My family's very thankful for the extremely generous way you all take care of us. And so thank you for your grace and kindness to us. Genesis chapter 1. Uh, let's start in verse 31, and then we're going to read down through chapter 2, verse 3 is just the, the first place uh, that we'll read, and then we'll pray together. So Genesis 1, verse 31. After creation, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and earth were completed on all their host. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Please bow with me. Father in heaven, God, we know that whenever we join here together, we're part of something that is, to say it's bigger than us is a pretty incredible understatement. Father, that you have brought us in, we who have turned to Christ, we who've been made right with you um, by the work of your son. God, you've brought us into your kingdom. You reign, you rule over every molecule of the universe, over every spirit in the heavenly realm. It's all yours. We've been brought to you. And Father, we also recognize that on this day, this day we call the Lord's Day. Lord, that we join with souls all over this planet who are collectively meeting together to sing of the glory of Christ, to draw near to you. We're taking part in the, the worship that the cosmos offers up to you. Father, I, I pray that today we will engage in this in a way that honors you, in a way that stirs our souls rightly to the joy and glorying in Christ that we should. And Father, I pray that as we study this this morning, that you'll show us more of your ways, show us more of how you've made this world and, and each individual part of what you've done in Christ is just amazing. And I pray God will see more and more of the glory of it and be moved to worship, Lord. So Father, I pray, bless this time. Father, we know that there are always so many distractions and so many ways that this time could be interrupted and our, our engagement with you and uh, the thinking on your word, oh God, could be altered. I pray, God, give grace to send your spirit to protect this time. Bless us to be able to think deeply and more importantly, 
to be able to worship. So bless us, God, to respond rightly to the word. And Lord, the, the job I need to do in that, please bless me. Please glorify your name. And Lord, our, our kids that are going back here to this time is they're going to learn new verses today and they continue to be confronted with the gospel. Lord, we beg that you bring about their faith in Christ, that you would awaken within them the, the new life, the new birth. Father, that they would trust in Christ. So please bless what happens back there. The preaching, teaching, receiving of your word, all of it, God, please bless it to your glory. Have mercy on us, O God. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you're here this morning. And I'm glad that you're here this morning. Even all of your pastors are here this morning. Some of you razzed uh, Pastor Ben this week. Pretty happy about that. And I'm glad that you're here. But let me ask you this question this morning. Why are you here? And I don't mean your motive, though that's a healthy question to ask, but a message for another day. I mean, why today? You know, the church has various uh, times of services and meetings and Bible studies and fellowships throughout the week. Why are none of those the big one? Why is this one right here, for lack of a better term, the big special one? Why is this one the high day of our worship? Where'd this pattern come from? Is it merely tradition? Is this merely an American thing? Or is there something deeper that's going on here? Well, we're still in this New Year series where we bring our thoughts to the glory of God and what it means to live for the glory of God, for our lives to be about the purpose of God's glory. And today I want to focus in on worship and then specifically this one aspect of worship. This day that we call the Lord's Day. How do we get it? Where'd it come from? And then, you know, maybe a more pertinent ad question, like what are we supposed to be doing today or not doing? We have questions about, is this day the Sabbath? Are we supposed to think of it in that way? What is happening with this here? That's what I want to look at this morning. And this really is a, a subject that Christians have been talking about for 2000 years. And we know that because there's even some talk of the debate amongst Christians as to how to view this day, even in the New Testament. So even in the very early church, there was a bit of wrestling with what is the day and what does it mean? The transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. How does all of this play a part? So this morning, want to think through uh, some of this with you and show you the scriptures. Spend some time with this. There is a whole lot more, but we're done with this, a whole lot more I'm going to have wanted to say, but just for the sake of time. I know you may think I do not limit my time in the pulpit, but I promise that I do put limits that are here. <laughs> There's a whole lot more we would want to look at at the end of this. You may have the kinds of questions, but Pastor Josh, what about this? And why didn't we go to John 5? And just a lot of things can't say everything every Sunday, but want to show you through the scripture where this came from and what it means for our worship. What does it mean for the people of God that we corporately gather in a high way on this day? So to do that, let me, let me try to take you through three parts. The first will be, I want to walk you through the Bible and show you what it says about the Sabbath rest 
and then the Lord's Day worship and how they connect. And we're going to spend almost all of our time there. So that'll be, uh, that'll be mainly what we're looking at. But then kind of towards the end, a couple more things we want to look at are what ought we to be doing on this day? And then lastly, maybe just a couple practical questions that play a part of this. So um, let's get started with number one, Sabbath rest and Lord's Day worship, if you're taking notes and want some kind of outline here. So you're in Genesis 1 and 2 there, and here's what we see. In Genesis 1, we see God create the heavens and the earth in six days, and then we come to the very next thing that God does. And you see it there in a pattern in verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 2 there. In verse 1, creation is completed. In verse 2, God rests. In verse 3, he sets aside a day. He takes a day and makes it, he, he uses the word sanctified, set it apart that day to commemorate. So it's a day to remember and a day to rest. So the pattern is set. And so this, this is kind of where we start with all of this. You do notice that the word Sabbath is never used in this text. Now, later on in the Bible, it'll look back and use the word Sabbath to describe it, but it's not there. Just the very basic, we have a principle here. The principle of one day in seven that is set aside for something different. One day in seven set aside for rest and remembering or rejoicing in the work of God, a, a day to commemorate the great work of God in creation. So what's another way of saying that? Well, we can say rest and worship. And I don't think I'm reading too much into the text there because later on, as it talks about the Sabbath, this is what God explains. God set it aside to be a day for rest and worship. So here are the principles. There are two of them to notice so far. The first one is there's a pattern. God worked, God rested, and then God invites into his rest. Remember that pattern, because we're going to see it over and over again through the Bibles we go through. And then the other one just simply being one day in seven is set aside. Well, as we continue through history that is recorded in the Bible through the scriptures, the next time that we see anything kind of connected with this Sabbath day that's related is when we come to Exodus 16. If you've got a Bible and you want to flip over there with us here, Exodus 16 is significant. This is just shortly before God's going to give the law, which we'll look at in, in a bit as well. But in Exodus 16, here's what's happening. You know, number one, always know this. There's a reason why we can take so many doctrines and we can start in Genesis and see God beautifully paint the picture and show us how they unfold all the way to Revelation with, I mean, not joking, 50 different doctrines, subjects, truths. There are these themes that run through the Bible. God slowly revealed more of himself, more of his will, and more of the plan of the gospel more of the plan of what he would accomplish in Christ. And we can, like all of those other subjects, see the Sabbath rest point to the gospel as well. But where we are in Exodus 16, it's a really pivotal teaching moment here that God designs. Israel has just come out of Egypt in the Exodus. They've been saved out of slavery and God's leading them into the promised land. 
But first they enter the wilderness. They come into the wilderness and what do they do? They groan, they complain for food and God teaches some critical truth there. So you're in Exodus 16, look at, look at verse four there. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Less, rest of the chapter goes on to explain kind of what happened. And so here's what we see. God designed all of this. God designed all of these things on purpose to preach truths. God began to send down bread from heaven every morning, the manna that we read about. And every morning they were to go out and they were to gather a day's portion. Now, the, the people wanted, they were tempted to go gather a lot more than a day's portion because that's what we do, okay? We like to gather up as much as possible because what if God forgets to take care of me, okay? But God is, was teaching them this principle. No, 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 you are to gather only one day's portion. Did the people listen? Of course not. These are humans we're talking about. So they would keep extra. And what happened is when they at the beginning would try to keep extra and keep it overnight, you know, just in case, in case God forgets tomorrow, I want to have that bread there. What happened is it grew foul, stank like something rotten. And we're even told part of the punishment of God here, worms <laughs> grew out of this bread that they kept overnight. God said, you trust me, I'll provide day by day. You only gather one day's portion. But on the sixth day, God would do something supernatural. And again, preaching truths. God said on the sixth day, you are to gather twice as much. And what God did is supernaturally preserve the manna until the seventh day, because on the seventh day, he would not send the manna. There would be none so that they could not go out and gather and work so that they would rest on the seventh day, on the Sabbath so that the work was already done. Then look over to verse 23 of chapter 16. Look what it says. And then he said to him, this is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. That by the way, is the first time in the Bible that the word Sabbath is used. And here's the pattern. See it again. God worked in sending down the bread from heaven. God rested God was finished. He did not send the bread on the seventh day. And then God invited them to join him in the rest. So we have the pattern. God provides or he creates, he finishes, and then he invites his people into the enjoyment of his rest. Shortly after this, we come to the law. If you flip over to Exodus 20 there. Exodus 20 is the chapter that has the 10 commandments. It was one of the, the first part there of the law that was given. Now we've been talking in the book of Romans a lot about the, the law. When we say law here, we usually mean capital L, law of Moses, the law that God gave at Sinai when he entered into that covenant with Israel. And it is important that we understand the distinction between the old covenant law and then a law we're going to talk about later today, the new covenant law. But here we have the law of Moses being given. Uh, when you come to verse eight of chapter 20, you see the fourth commandment given. 
Verse eight, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So what we have here is the law is looking back to creation, looking back to Genesis 2, recognizing what happened, the principle that was given And now a commandment is given. Now, let me tell you from the beginning here, there is some disagreement amongst Christians who fellowship together as to exactly how all of this relates in some things. And some Christians would disagree with the statement I'm about to make. So I just kind of want to put that out there, okay? What we see here though is a movement from a principle then to a command, I don't believe that there was a command to uh, and restrictions of the Sabbath before this moment. This is the moment that God instructed the restrictions pertaining to the Sabbath. And as you continue to read through the law, you see God address the things they were or were not to do on the Sabbath. And some of the things you'll notice is it's pretty strict. But God now gives the commandment. Now, later, uh, God expounds upon it. For instance, you can flip over to chapter 31 of Exodus, one place that I do specifically want to show you. There's more that he says that we have to skip over. But verse 31, find verse 12. Look what he says. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, but as for you, speak to the sons of Israel saying, you shall surely observe my Sabbaths for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore, you, you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Notice two things. Number one, the Sabbath was the sign of that covenant. You may remember as we've studied covenants in the Bible that oftentimes... When God would make a covenant with humans, he would give a sign that somehow represented the covenant. Okay, so in Noah's day, God set his bow in the cloud. With Abraham, God gave the sign of circumcision. In the new covenant, we have baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay, in this covenant, the sign that God gives was the Sabbath. And if you think about it, it's a pretty apt sign that when you think old covenant law, the Sabbath is a pretty helpful reminder of what it was. Restrictions set apart. God's preaching truths in all of these things. But the second thing to notice there is this. Notice the seriousness. God says you break the Sabbath, you have forfeited your life. In the old covenant law, Sabbath breaking was a capital offense with murder. There are other things that were forbidden in that old covenant law. You weren't allowed to lie. You weren't allowed to steal, but you you weren't put to death for those things. Sabbath breaking, however, carried the death penalty with it. That seems severe to us. It is not. God is showing some things here. We actually see an instance in Israel's history when that happened. 
Uh, over in Numbers 15, don't have time to look at it. Let me just tell you what happened. In Numbers 15, they're still in the wilderness. So the commands are all still fresh. And a man defiantly, defiantly walks out and gathers firewood on the Sabbath. He knows better. This was not an accident. This is high-handed and deliberate disobedience. And so they go and they arrest him, but they don't really know what they should do. And God spoke to Moses and said this, he shall surely be put to death. He has defiantly broken the commandment. And so we see this. It carried a severe penalty. God was not messing around with this, there is a clear sign that's given. Now, if we had more time, I'd love to take us to the prophets and see the way that they speak of the Sabbath. Something I really wanted to show is the uh, idea that they were to give their land Sabbath's rest, but they did not do that. But God then made a Sabbath rest come to the land in the 70 years of captivity. But you'll have to study some of that on your own. But let's jump to the New Testament. And here's the big question we got to address. Well, the biggest questions that we Christians have wrestled with is the connection between the old covenant and the new covenant. How are we to understand how they relate to one another? That's really one of the biggest things the book of Hebrews is doing. It's addressing how the two covenants relate. And so let me show you a bit here and how this pertains. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus said, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, this is important that we get this. Jesus came and he spoke over and over again about how he was bringing the new covenant. But he said this, I did not come to, to take the old covenant, to take the law and to scrap it, to trash it, to wad it up and throw it away. You can't do that. You can't take a contract that's unfulfilled and just say, well, this isn't working. We're not going to do it. You can't go to your bank with your mortgage payment and say, this isn't working out real well. I'm just not going to pay you any longer. Well, let me, let me take it back. You can do that, I suppose. You're just not going to have a house, okay? So you, you cannot take an unfulfilled contract and be like, we're going to just throw this away. Jesus came to bring the new covenant and he came to fulfill and finish the old covenant. It's important that we understand this. He came to fulfill and finish the old covenant. There was a debt we could not pay. And so Jesus came to pay it by his work of the cross. The old covenant law has not been wadded up and thrown away, but rather the debt paid in full and therefore it's paid off. When you pay off, if you have a mortgage on your house, when you pay it off, the contract is fulfilled and it's no longer in force. You can't abolish it before it's time. But once it's completed, then the book can be closed and the document's signed and it's over. The New Testament explains that this is how we are to see the old covenant. Flip over to Hebrews with me, please. And we're gonna spend a lot of time in Hebrews. So you might as well maybe just stay there for a while. But Hebrews 8 and find verse 8. Hebrews 8, 8. 
So a passage begins and then you notice in your Bibles, there's a big quote from the Old Testament here. And then what he's going to do is going to teach on this passage from the Old Testament. So verse eight, for finding fault with them, he says, behold, days are coming. So this is from Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. After that, he goes on to teach and, and say some more things about this new covenant, but jump down to verse 13 here. This is important. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. And whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to disappear. Let me give an example. Certain elements of that old covenant law that we talk about, like the dietary restrictions and such, we know that we no longer keep those. It may not know why, but we know we don't. But for instance, if you were to take a lamb, and somehow find a descendant of Levi. You couldn't because the records have been destroyed in AD 70. But let's say you found a descendant of Levi and you, and you had him make a sacrifice on your behalf. Take that lamb, spill its blood and make a guilt offering. You would be dishonoring the Lord. Even though that was a prescribed command in the old covenant. The reason why you would be dishonoring the Lord is because we are no longer in that covenant. That covenant is now finished and done and we are in a new covenant. So it would dishonor him. Another important passage, maybe just look the page over to chapter seven of Hebrews. Uh, there's uh, a discussion here in this chapter about uh, how Jesus is better the new covenant is better. Jesus is the prophet. Jesus is the king we've been looking for. And then chapter seven mentions Jesus is the priest we've been waiting for. There's no law. It's no longer a priesthood of descendants of Levi. We have a new priest. It's Jesus. Jesus is the mediator between us and the father. And then look at verse 12. This is big as well. For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. There is a change of law in this new covenant. So you've known we, are, we no longer keep the dietary laws, some of those clothing restrictions and the washings and such from that ceremonial law of the old covenant. But the New Testament here is showing us the why and how it works. God put those things in force for a season of time. That old covenant was a temporary covenant. It was not designed to be forever. It was in designed to preach truths for a season of time, get the world and the angels ready for the coming of the new covenant. And now in this new covenant, there is a new law. The first Corinthians calls it the law of Christ. The book of James calls it the law of liberty. It is different from the law of Moses given at Sinai. But here's the major question. We got two laws. Are they completely different in every way? Of course not. You know, in the Ten Commandments, part of the law of Moses, it forbade murder and theft and lying and coveting and dishonoring your parents. All of those things are a part of the new covenant. Because, you, you know, you're never going to be in a covenant with God where he says, all right, new covenant, new rules. This time you're allowed to murder people. Okay. Like this is not the way that God works. These moral matters are eternal issues of holiness, dietary restrictions. That's not an eternal thing. That was a temporary thing, not to eat the pork and not to eat the shellfish and things like this. Those were preaching sermons. They came to a conclusion. Now there is a new law in this new covenant. 
But what parts of the Old Testament law are a part of the New Testament law? That's some of the question we're addressing here. Thankfully, the New Testament is pretty exhaustive in that it goes to great detail to explain what God requires of us. What does God expect of us? And really, there are only a couple or a few points that Christians through history have had a question about. So for instance, uh, the Old Testament law forbade the eating of blood, the partaking of blood in any kind of way. There have been a few Christians down through the years who said, I think that we ought to keep that as part of the new covenant. Most all of us see that as that was a ceremonial kind of thing to point to the uh, blood atonement. It's been fulfilled in Christ. That is over now. But this question, of how do we view the Sabbath has been the the biggest source of discussion of how does the Old Covenant and the New Covenant relate to one another. So here's the question. Is keeping a Sabbath day a commandment that is part of the law of Christ? We know that there's been a change in the day. Okay, so Old Covenant Sabbath was the seventh day. That was the Sabbath. New Covenant we gather together on Sunday, the first day of the week. There's been a change of the day, and we're going to talk about why. But here is a question. Should we think of this day as the Sabbath, with Sabbath restrictions? Now, let me say from the very beginning, uh, I'm going to show you what I believe and what this church has kind of came to our conclusion on and what we believe But one of the passages we're going to look at that is the most important is going to say, this is not a matter to divide over. We can and must fellowship with Christians who see differently on this issue right here. Some Christians believe that this day is the Sabbath. Others, like I'm going to tell you, this is the conclusion of where I'm coming to This is not the Sabbath, but there is something unique about this day, a day set aside of one in seven. But there is to be fellowship amongst Christians here. This is not a matter to divide over. So let me take you to three passages that I think answer the question of, is this day a Sabbath or is it something different? Three passages in the New Testament that I think show this. Here's the first one, Hebrews 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Find verse one, right before this, there is some discussion about the fact that in the wilderness, okay, uh, those Israelites traveling around, God had uh, made all kinds of offers and they could have come and been right with him. But because of disbelief, unbelief, they were not right with God. And and we're going to see this metaphor of the rest, rest. So the same rest that was spoken of in Genesis two, it's a theme that carries through the Bible. That's not the only place God spoke of rest. God made an offer to the Israelites. When I bring you into the promised land, I will bring you into my rest. And what this passage is going to do, it it, it is a little bit complex. Okay, so I'm kind of trying to tell you what to look for before we even read it. It's kind of passage, you know, you got to read four or five times when you're studying. He's going to show that the rest that God invited people into was a metaphor for salvation. Just like every other picture of that old covenant, we're saying all the time that God put these pictures, illustrations to point to Christ. Sabbath rest is yet another metaphor of Christ and his work of salvation 
So watch for it here as we read through it. Verse one, Hebrews four, one, therefore let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also Israelites in the Old Testament, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed, Christians, enter that rest. Just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. What he's saying there is that Genesis 2 was referring to more than just a Sabbath day. It was referring to something deeper, something bigger. It was referring to salvation. Uh, Verse four, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, and that's referring to uh, Psalm 95, a passage referring to Israel in the wilderness, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today. Saying through David after so long a time, just as had been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What he's saying is it was more than Sabbath rest. God was offering salvation and anyone who believes can enter this rest. Verse eight, for if Joshua had given them rest, that's entering the promised land, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Now here's our verse. So there remains a Sabbath rest. For the people of God, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. All right. So here's what's happening in the same way that we're all the time talking about these pictures from the old covenant, like the sacrifices that God gave them in order to preach truths. Like we take the day of atonement, the day of atonement, a lamb was uh, slain, its blood spilt and sprinkled on the mercy seat to appease the wrath of God. So Jesus has come as the lamb of God, his blood spilt to appease the wrath of God for those who trust in Christ. Picture fulfillment all the time, all the time, all the time. The Sabbath is yet another one of these. It's another picture of what Christ has accomplished. There's the pattern that we've been seeing at creation. God worked, God rested, and God invited people into his rest. Guys, in the gospel, in the work of redemption, we have the exact same pattern. God has provided for your rest salvation. Jesus worked, Jesus rested, and Jesus now invites us into his rest. Do you see the picture there? There is a reason why the New Testament is so explicit to show Jesus accomplishing his work. Listen, when Jesus from the cross pronounced, it is finished, it's finished. And then the following day, what does he do? Rest in the grave. He keeps the Sabbath, raises and invites us into his rest. You have that pattern all over again. God works, God rests, God invites us into his rest. Jesus accomplishes redemption, finishes this work, keeps and the body rests in the grave, raises from the dead and invites us into his rest. Guys, this is beautiful. This is an incredible picture that once again, everything is showing the gospel. 
In the same way that marriage shows the gospel, the Lord's Supper shows the gospel, baptism shows the gospel. God has designed the cosmos to show the message of Christ. The Sabbath is yet another one of those pictures. And it has been fulfilled. It has done that. And it has been finished. So that's the first thing to see is this pattern that's shown there. But here's the second thing to see from Hebrews 4. If keeping a Sabbath day were a commandment that were part of the law of Christ, could Hebrews 4 read like it does? It couldn't. Okay. Think about it. The author of Hebrews says, for the Christian, there does remain a Sabbath rest. What is it? Salvation. Because turning to Christ, here's the picture. I rest from trying to make myself righteous by my works. And by faith, I rest in Christ. There's your Sabbath, Christian. There's the Sabbath you're invited into. Stop trying to make yourself righteous. Trust and rest in Christ. So Hebrews says for the Christian, there is a Sabbath that remains. It's salvation. I think that would be similar to the New Testament saying something like, for the Christian, there does remain a circumcision, but it's not circumcision of the flesh. It's circumcision of the heart which is another reference to turning to Christ for salvation. So, meaning I believe the Sabbath is part of what has been fulfilled and finished in the Old Covenant. But hang in there. Let's look at some more. Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, an incredibly important passage for a number of things. So walk through this with me here. Romans 14, beginning in verse one. Now accept the one who is weak in faith. This is about Christian fellowship and Christian unity except the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. What are we talking about here? An example used is a Christian vegetarian. Now, let me, let's make this clear. The Christian vegetarian, is he right? No, but how are we to regard that man? As a heretic, you can't really love Jesus because you don't eat steak? No. You may be tempted to say yes, but no. Okay? The Christian vegetarian is wrong. But there are matters we are not to divide over. There is a time for patiently bearing with those who do not understand things yet. So keep going. Verse three, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt. You're not to look down on the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now watch these verses. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. All right, let me draw two points here from this text. The first one is this. If the Sabbath, if keeping a Sabbath day were still a command in this new covenant, could this passage read like this? I don't believe so. Remember, a man was stoned to death for breaking the Sabbath in the old covenant. And here it said, if someone doesn't see it, still fellowship together. That would not have been said in the old covenant. And if a Sabbath day were still a command here, but here's the second point. 
Couldn't someone also say, all right, well, pastor, these verses, don't they also mean that acknowledging a Lord's Day isn't necessary? Okay, because we are getting to the point that I'm going to show you the Lord's Day, that there is something unique on the first day of the week. But couldn't somebody say, but aren't these passages saying that none of that is necessary? Well, look at the whole section again. The whole point of the passage is about Christian fellowship, even when Christians disagree on some of these peripheral third tier matters. And he gives three examples in this chapter. Now guys, this is good stuff, okay? If we Christians could hold to this, there'd be a whole lot more Christian unity than what there is right now where everybody's dividing and fighting over everything, okay? He gives three examples. Notice how verse two is worded. He uses the example of eating meat. Later in the chapter, the example of drinking wine. And thirdly, of regarding days. Notice how verse two is worded. He says, there are weak Christians who don't understand things yet. And they believe that eating meat is wicked. Are they right? No. Later in chapter 14, he makes the same point about drinking wine. The Christian who believes that drinking wine is evil. Are they right? No. That's shown pretty clearly throughout the New Testament. Jesus drank wine. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with wine. Chapter 14 mentions that it is a weak believer who is not able to do this. So that's the second. And then the third one is the regarding of days. The regarding of days. He doesn't get into which one is right or wrong. What he simply says is, this is not a matter to divide over. When we come to chapter 14 in our study through Romans, one of the points we'll make is, if your version of Christianity is so narrow that you cannot fellowship with people who disagree with you on peripheral matters, you need an angel to pop you in the back of the head. It's legalistic. It's narrow. It's pharisaical. We are to have fellowship in still some of these matters, even when there is disagreement. So I say this to show when he speaks of regarding one day above another, he doesn't address which way is right, but rather what our attitude ought to be. So let me make this one clear. There are Christians who do not believe that the first day of the week is special. I think that they're wrong in the same way that I think a Christian vegetarian is wrong but I am not to regard him as a heretic and that he can't really love Jesus. There is to be unity on these kinds of matter. There is a time for patiently trying to show things from the Bible. But again, if a Sabbath day were in force, these verses could not read like this. One last passage, Colossians chapter two. Colossians two. Find verse 16, before these verses, the gospel is preached. And what is specifically uh, emphasized is that Jesus has paid the debt we were owed. Paid the debt and it is uh, paid in full. And then this, verse 16, Colossians 2, 16, therefore, okay, because of the gospel, because Jesus has fulfilled these things, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So watch this. Again, if the Sabbath were a command today, could it be worded like this? No. And notice what he does. He connects the Sabbath day to feast days, 
dietary restrictions and the new moon festival from the Old Testament. Things which were part of the ceremonial law and he calls them things which are a mere shadow but the substance is Christ. So how are we to look at the Sabbath day? This passage, I think, makes pretty definitively clear. I know there are Christians who disagree, but I think makes pretty definitively clear. It's connected with that ceremonial law. It's connected with the feast days and the dietary restrictions, things which have been brought to a fulfillment and conclusion. So are we done then? Is that it? There's... The Sabbath has come to a conclusion and now we're just done. There's nothing at all. No, now let's back up and let's see what we do have in the new covenant. If you start at the beginning of the New Testament and you begin to read through the gospels, you will find something emphasized in the work of Christ. You will find all four gospels emphasize Jesus raising on the first day of the week. As you read through the Gospels, you don't see language of things like, you know, Jesus came into Jerusalem on the second day of the week or, you know, on a Friday or any of those kinds of things. There's not this language. But when it comes to his work of the cross, it is very specifically pointed out to us that he was crucified on the day of preparation, which was the day before the Sabbath, because that's the day you prepared your food, prepared your firewood, things like that. He was crucified on the day of preparation. He was in the grave on the Sabbath and we're even told they kept the Sabbath according to the commandment. And then every single gospel, very specific to mention, very early as it began to dawn on the first day of the week, then we're told about Jesus's resurrection. In fact, there's something unique even in the original language. There's a common word for first, uh, protos, that's used 150 times, but it's not used in regard to the resurrection of Christ and the reference of that day. There's a unique Greek word that is only used six times in the New Testament. And every time that it is used, it is only used in this reference, in text, in passages that are referring to this day. It was like a marker that began to be commonly referred to, the first day of the week. So Matthew, the first day of the week. Jesus raises Mark, the first day of the week. Luke, the first day. John, the first day of the week. As we continue on reading through the New Testament, you come to the book of Acts. In a similar kind of way, you don't see language of, you know, Paul entered the city on the fourth day or things like this. But you do see language of on the first day of the week when the believers were gathered together to break bread. That was a reference to the Lord's Supper. This, this, and this happened. On the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, the day that the Holy Spirit came. The day of Pentecost every single year came on a Sunday, what we call in English a Sunday, the first day of the week. The believers were gathered together, worshiping on the first day of the week when the Holy Spirit came in power. It is specifically pointed out. You have the book of Acts establishing a pattern. It's a pattern. A pattern set in the gospels continued in Acts, and it helps us make sense of some other places in the New Testament, like 1 Corinthians 16. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it. First part of 1 Corinthians 16 says this, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, 
Each of you is to set aside and save. And then he continues on talking about this offering they were taking up for the, the poor believers. The first day of the week. It's kind of important because the new early church gathered together often, numerous times through the week. But there was a pattern established that the first day of the week would be the high day of worship. It's when they would take up their offering. There's at least some indication that this is when they practice the Lord's Supper together. And so we see the pattern that was formulating here. We go all the way back to Genesis 2. God worked. God rested. God invited people into his rest. And then he set aside a day of commemorating that work, establishing a special day. We're in the new covenant. And we have a new day of commemorating the work of God in this covenant, the work of redemption, the work of Jesus resurrecting. Every single time we gather together on the first day of the week, we are even without saying the words, demonstrating something. We are remembering the gospel. We are remembering the resurrection of Christ. We gather on this day as a way of celebrating, rejoicing, remembering, and modeling to the angels. We gather on the day that our Lord accomplished redemption, the day he rose from the dead. And so all of that helps us make sense of what we're told in Revelation 1.10. John the apostle had been arrested again for preaching the gospel. And there was a time that instead of being sent to prison, they put him on an island, the island of Patmos. And in verse 10, he says that he was in the spirit on a particular Lord's day when God brought the vision of the book of Revelation to him. What did he mean by that phrase? The Lord's day. Well, this is what the first day of the week had begun to be called by Christians to refer to this first day of the week, the high day of worship. Now, who came up with that name? We don't have a clue. <laughs> but does it make sense that John the apostle using the title gives his approval of it? It had become a pattern. Believers gather for the high day of worship on the first day of the week. It became known as the Lord's day. And John then uses this language. We have the principle, one day in seven is set aside as special, the high day of worship. John's stuck on an island. It's the Lord's day. He's by himself, but what's he doing? He's worshiping. And it's in the midst of that worship that the Lord visits him with the most astounding prophetic vision of all of scripture. The apostles established this pattern of the early church. They would meet on this day for their greatest day of worship. We can track the history of the church and see the age right after the apostles and that they continued this. This is where the Lord's day came from. So now here's the second part. What are we to do? On this day, if we've established that it exists and there is a principle of one day in seven, now what do we do? This is a place of disagreement, of fellowshipping Christians, of whether or not this day should be treated like exactly like the Old Testament Sabbath with all of its restrictions. Like, are you dishonoring God if you go pick up sticks in your yard on this day? Or is it a day that has more liberty? Is it the principle or the command? 
Last week, I mentioned to you Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. And if you remember, I said I didn't agree with every sentence that he said. Here was one of his resolutions. He resolved to strive never to laugh on the Sunday Sabbath. I disagree with him that it was the Sabbath, and I disagree that it would have been dishonoring God to laugh. But your Puritans and many of your reformers and some of these folks regarded this day as the Sabbath and had some pretty strict rules they gave in the keeping of it. So how should we treat this day? This has to largely be a matter of your convictions. Because what I want to tell you is there is no place in the New Testament that lays out some set of laws there's no place that says, okay, you can do this, but not this. You can walk this many steps or pick up this many sticks. None of that is there. It must be a matter of your conviction. But part of what I hope you are gathering is that there is clearly the expectation that we will gather with the blood-bought people of God and we will worship the King. We will commemorate the resurrection. We will rejoice in the gospel. We will... Well, let's go back to Hebrews for a moment. Hebrews chapter 12. Let me show you a couple places that really emphasize these things. Hebrews chapter 12, find verse 18. Look what happens here. Hebrews 12, 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. He's going to refer to Mount Sinai here, an earthly mountain. Or to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind. All of this is what happened in Exodus 19 when Israel came to Mount Sinai. And to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Christian, we don't come to that mountain. Where do we come? You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. Where is this? Heaven. You have come to heaven and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. What are those verses saying? It is saying that there is a real way we come to the very throne of God in the heavenly Jerusalem when we gather to worship. That is not just a metaphor. It also doesn't mean that like as we're sitting here, all of our souls just like left our bodies and ascended up. Okay, that's nothing weird, okay? But what it means is in a mysterious but real way, we approach the throne. We come to the very presence of God. The angels never stop exalting. They never stop singing in heralding praise that shakes the very foundations of the throne room of heaven. And this morning we join them. We approach the throne together. Hebrews 4 says we come boldly to the very throne of grace. Revelation says that our prayers ascend up to heaven as sweet incense to God. In other words, it's not just like we're down here and have no connection to up there. We engage with God and we do so together. We join heaven. Heaven is worshiping right now. When we gather, we join them. We join the angels. We join the souls gathered around the throne. We 
Chapter 10, Hebrews 10, look at verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is the flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart. Here's how Douglas Wilson puts it. When the church gathers together corporately, we go to heaven together. We go to heaven together. We approach the throne. We pass through the veil. We join the angels. We join the souls of believers who have already passed and what they're doing right now. We join them. And then notice when you're in Hebrews 10, right after these verses that we just read there, what's the very next thing that happens? 24 and 25. The call not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. The call for us to gather, it's a beckons. It's a call, don't not come. Don't stay home. Gather, come. Let's corporately, that means all of us together, gather together and join the worship of heaven. And if we're gonna talk about patterns set by the New Testament early church, we obviously see the pattern that they didn't just meet together once a week. Our calling in Christ of who we are as the church and what we are to be as the church is bigger than what we could ever accomplish in one time together. We're called to be a people 24 seven. And to do that effectively, we must draw near to God. Listen, worship is to define our lives. Scripture tells us to worship daily but there is something special. There is something unique and transforming about gathering corporately. We are to worship privately. The Bible says so. We are to worship as families in our households. The Bible says so. But there is something unique and special about the church family gathering together and approaching the throne together. And so the man who stays home and listens to internet sermons by himself and says, ah, it's all the same. He's missing something. It is inadequate if all we do is come here, just like it would be inadequate to understand the importance of family worship or household worship or personal worship and be like, I don't need the church. I do it on my own. No, gather. The Lord's day is a day for the believers to gather and approach the throne together. There's something unique that happens when groups gather and join the celebration of heaven. And we could probably list out a dozen or so reasons. One of them pretty easily would be if a celebration were held in your honor, say a retirement party or birthday party or something, and a whole bunch of the people who were invited all stayed home, but sent you a congrats and I'm just you know too busy, send something from here, not quite as special as if everybody would gather together that's there. The Lord's day worship, this is the day we join. This is the highest day. So unapologetically, what we tell you is, we as a church family, we have lots of different things we do through the week. We have different worship services, Bible studies, men's breakfasts, women's Bible studies and such. And the shepherds of this church highly encourage, we plead with you, to join in several of those. 
We're at a point in our church family life here, we're a really active bunch. You probably can't go to everything that we hold because we have so much. But this one, this one, this is the high day. This is the special one. This is the one that is the non-negotiable, will I or will I not? We join to boldly approach the throne. So here's the very last one, and I'm finishing up here. So if there is a call to gather with the church family on the Lord's day, some practical questions. Does that mean things like we shouldn't travel for family vacations because we need to be here? Not at all, not at all. But it does mean that on the Lord's day, there's the expectation that we will gather with believers. There's the expectation that we will join with others and go to heaven with them. All right, pastor, well, does that mean then that I shouldn't hike the Appalachian Trail or go moose hunting in Alaska where I'm away from other people? Well, the obligatory joke coming, you know, if you're going moose hunting, I'm sure the Bible somewhere tells you take your pastor along with you and then we'll go to heaven together. Okay, but by all means, no, no, no. That is not what this means. It doesn't mean that if you can't be in church, you, you ought not. But what it does mean is this. On the Lord's day, no matter what is happening, tornadoes, snowstorms, prison, or I'm exiled on the island of Patmos, on the Lord's day, I'm going to heaven. On the Lord's day, I'm joining with believers. On the Lord's day, I may not be joining with believers like this, but I am joining with believers in the heavenly realms. Guys, don't you see that there is something really cool of what happens every single Sunday? Like, you know, not everybody can attend the Monday night Bible study or things like this, but every single Sunday, starting in the east as the sun rises and then sweeping across this earth, the believers of an entire planet, glory in Jesus Christ. We sing, we exalt, we celebrate, we rejoice. The angels watch, the demons tremble, and God is glorified. On one day of this earth, his praises are sung. We picture something. We picture something on this day. In the new heavens and the new earth, here's the consummation, so don't miss this part. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be a, day, there will be a Lord's day and it will not end. There is some uniqueness that is told that there will be no night. The Lord's day will go on and on. We are picturing on one day what will happen eternally on the Lord's day. To you who are still outside of Christ, to you who have still not come and made peace with him by trusting in him, the day of the Lord is going to reign eternally. But right now you have no part of it. You will not get to enjoy it. Turn to Christ. Acknowledge his lordship now. Bow and cry out to be saved and you will share in that eternal Lord's day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. <laughs> Sunday after Sunday, we pray and we just say, we're just absolutely amazed. Just absolutely amazed by the glory and the complexity and the beauty of what you have designed in this world and what is coming in the future. We rejoice in you. Father, I pray that we believers will magnify and honor your name. I pray that we'll be a church that pleases you. 
Father, I pray for any in this room that has not trusted Christ. Please, today, don't let today pass without them turning to you, O God. Father, please bless us as we leave. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed and were deeply affected by this week's message titled, The Lord's Day. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.